Technology works every time. But uh, again, thanks for coming out. I know that the Rams are playing tonight on Thursday Night Football. I know you're all Rams fans, so you should be home watching it. No. Uh, Star Wars opens tonight also, so that's pretty serious counter-programming. But um, All right, so tonight, Forgotten Thinkers, Jacques Barzon. Um, I titled the series Forgotten Thinkers so I could sneak in people like Barzon, who's not really a philosopher. He's a historian, a social critic, an educator, um, sort of a man of letters, and he lived an amazing and long life. He was active for over a hundred years, so he lived from uh, 1907 is when he was born. He died in 2012. He wrote over 40 works. He did just about everything you can do as a man of letters. He won awards, nominated for two Pulitzer Prizes, French Legion of Merit, uh, Presidential Medal for uh, work in education in the humanities, all kinds of national boards and research policy and award-winning books and research grants and so on and so forth. And anything you read about him will say he was this eminent and influential man of letters for a century. Eminent without doubt, influential not at all. Uh, Jacques Barzon fought, uh, I don't even fought is, is the correct term. I would say he commentated the rearguard action for the end of the classical world. He was the sort of, wow, look, there goes another fortress fallen to the barbarian enemies. Oh, look, there is another great city captured by the hideous hordes. The illiterate masses have overrun another great and beautiful spot. This is, sort of sums up all of Jacques Barzon's writing. Um, he, he influenced absolutely nothing. People like to think they were influenced by him because his ideas were so great and wonderful and powerful and articulate, articulately presented, and yet there's all the evidence runs that he lost every battle in which he was engaged, uh, and nobody seems to care one way or the other. So uh, while Barzan may be remembered slightly, even though he's only been dead for a few years, I think mostly his works and his arguments have been forgotten, not so much because of him, but because they ran counter to the entire tenor of the times in which he lived. And so if you look at his biography, I gave a brief outline there because important, he was born in 1907, so pre-World War I, and he was born in France. Now this is important, the first 13 or 14 years of his life he lived in France, and his parents, in, in, primarily in Paris, but also in Grenoble, um, and his parents had a salon at which famous writers and painters would attend. And so that was the milieu in which he was raised. So his upbringing was sort of this last vestige of the old tradition. It was, old, it was dying even when he was young and experiencing it. But that was his formative personal, familial, educational experience. Not his schooling, which was there, the traditional French school system, but his home life in Paris with the artists, with the intellectuals, with his parents hosting, conversation, an interest in the intellect. There's no television. Radio doesn't really exist per se. That was still the formative culture. Then World War I comes along and sort of blows up the last of that, kaboom, which is you know, sort of one way to think of World War I is, is just burning down all of that great tradition. His father, who was an ambassador to the United States uh, immediately, I think during the war, but immediately following the war, sort of thought this would be a great place to send his son to escape kind of the chaos of post-war Europe. And so when he was 13 or 14, he comes to the United States and begins studying, um, mostly on his own. His, his parents were not here, so he was sort of cast out in the world on his own very early, did, did quite well. And so he begins to study, and he goes to, ends up at Columbia, a uh, very good student. As soon as he graduates with his bachelor's degree, they hire him to teach immediately. Um, so he had taught five years when he received his PhD. That's not done a lot anymore, uh, but, but that was, you know, what he did. And then after he graduated Columbia, uh, got his PhD, they loved him so much that they kept him for about 40 years. Um, I think, well, I have the date there, I think, until 1975. So he, he uh, 
he attended, uh, he started at Columbia in about 1922, 23, and stayed until about 1975. With, you know, he had sabbaticals and he would visit other schools and he would travel around. He did all kinds of things, but basically he was the Columbia guy at large and on campus. And he, of course, in that amount of time, he did everything, headed up departments, graduate studies. He was an excellent administrator. We'll talk about this in his career. Um, then when he's seven, at, at 75, in 1975, now, now he's been there at Columbia for 40 years. He moves to Austin, starts working at the university there in Austin. And then he works for another 40 years. I mean, so he had this incredible lifespan that he saw everything from pre-war Europe to post-war America to man on the moon, civil rights movement, computers, the internet, everything. He saw it all. But it's important to remember that the entire time he was looking with a very specific type of mind, a type of mind that he called an intellect. What he meant by this was a highly trained mind. He was also a historian, so the history mattered to him, very un-American. Details mattered to him. He thought you had to get the facts right. Logic and clarity mattered to him. Um, and then because he lived so long, his experience tied with his historical knowledge gave him this incredible perspective. But always remember, he was also an outsider. He was not a native-born American. So he also has that perspective, not just of the historian, but of the foreigner. Because anytime you go to a foreign country, of course, it doesn't matter what country it is, you always realize that they do things wrong, right? Or differently, at least, right? I mean, it's like, well, this isn't that. And it's always amazing to us because we're inculcated to think this is the way the world is in little ways and in big ways. And when we go someplace where that's not the culture, it sort of, we'll start, it can be different. It doesn't have to be like this. And he sort of lived that for a hundred years of saying, it doesn't have to be like this. And I was trying to think of how to clarify the way his mind worked. I would say he was the master of the obvious that is overlooked. He, he, he just had this capacity to articulate what, when he finished telling you about it, seemed so obvious you can't believe you hadn't worked it out for yourself. And I'll just give you two examples. Um, one is he says that this is just a commonplace. Every generation complains that, oh, the, the world has changed and things have fallen off and things aren't as good as they used to be. And he says, and every generation complains. And Barzon says, and every generation is correct because we always live in times of change. And we don't change in logical or reasonable Ways And so no matter what new is coming up, often things are being lost. Valuable things, ways of life, capacities, thoughts, social structures, things that used to be no longer exist. Many of you are, are, are old enough to remember this, but I've asked a lot of people this generation, they can generally remember the day that television reached their neighborhoods. Because the day that a few families got TV, you couldn't play baseball on the streets anymore because not enough kids were around. That, uh, uh, that just enough were sucked into indoor activity of watching the TV that the baseball teams ended. Because you need a lot of kids to play baseball. And so the new, the TV, great, wonderful, all kinds of exciting developments there, display something. What was the value of what's being displaced? And Barzon's very clear argument is that what we need to ask ourselves is not to say, oh, this is just old people moaning. We need to interrogate whether what is being lost is worth what is being gained. And if it's not, can we, as, as articulate and intelligent subjects, hang on to that which we don't want to lose? We aren't just automatons. We aren't just the victims of history. We can be, but we aren't just that. Sometimes we can intervene and say, you know, we think this is valuable. This is something that should be saved and carried forward into the future. We don't want to let go of this. And he says, so what happens when that, we make this joke, oh, well, yeah, the old people always complain about what's being lost. And then we go, well, they've always complained about this, so they just must be stupid. Or this is just old people grumbling, which may also be true. But he says, what we need to ask ourselves is if what they're articulating has merit. Should we actually care about it? 
Is it significant? And when he articulated that, I thought, wow, that's so obviously true. Why hadn't I thought of that before? What they're experiencing is what culture experiences at large. Some things fade away, some things come in. Is this a good exchange? Are we gaining or losing? That's the historical perspective to ask that question. Um, Another one that he consistently talks about, I guess I can raise it now and then we'll look at some of the specific works, is that in a democracy, in theory is the, the rule of the people, the populace. But what we mean by democracy, the, the idea of democracy is pretty simple. Equality before the law, you get to vote for your representative. And he says this, this idea has been around for a long time. Many different countries have democracy, but every country has its own take on this. And they'll come back to this again and again, and we'll see it in various works. In the United States, this notion of democracy, he calls the demos, or the demotic democracy, because what he says it means is mass rule, an absolute hatred of elitism in any form. We love equality. And what he points out, which is kind of strange, is democracy does not require equality in any way except before the law and that you have the franchise. So you can have huge, disparate wealth and education and background and capacities and everything else and still have a perfectly fine functional democracy, and there are many examples of them. Equality is not required in any other aspect of life. He says, one of the peculiarities of American democracy is we want it in all aspects of life. We want to democratize everything, even things that are prima facie undemocratizable. Is that a word? Things that cannot be subject to the democratic principle. We, we, we want that, and we'll see this. And so when he reflects on the nature of democracy, having come to see an arc of development of it over 100 years of experience, and in different countries, we say democracy like it's one thing, one concept, one idea, and that it's clear. And he says it's anything but clear. It's anything but one idea, and it's expressed in anything but one way. Um, if there's anything, again, that, that sets his works apart, again, this clarity of expression, and I want to go through uh, some of his ideas, and also he picks generally very important things to write about. And he writes about them clearly, but in ways that are unexpected and also unnerving. Um, and I'll just go through some of his main works. Like I said, he did over 40 of them. So, but I just picked a few in order. So he comes to the United States. He's been studying here for a while. And so his first big book is Race, a Study in Modern Superstition. By the way, this is not how to win friends and influence people in the United States in 1936 as a young academic professional getting your oars wet there, right? What does he want to do? Big book on race and why the American sense of it is total and utter crap, right? And that is, that is roughly what he tries to roll out. Again, another battle that he lost uh, resolutely because no matter how clearly and articulated he demonstrated, as you can't but help to do, that race is a nonsense superstition, uh, yeah, you know, we, we really haven't. We haven't gotten past that. So there's a quote here. Where does the quotes go I have from there? Um, yeah, he says, in 17th and 18th century France, race was already a weapon in the struggle between absolutism, aristocracy, and the middle class. The warfare spread to the arts and philosophy in the 19th century, by which time independent shoots and other cultures had also borne fruit, leaving the grand harvesting on a worldwide scale to our generation. Viewed in light of such facts, the race question appears as a much bigger affair than trumped-up excuse for local persecution. It becomes rather a mode of thought endemic in Western civilization. It defaces every type of mental activity, history, art, politics, science, and social reform. So, there you go. Right? <laughs> so here is the superstition which he demonstrates is clear there is just no basis in race. One of his even earlier book is called On the French Race, because we don't think of the French as a race, but it just goes to show how silly race is as a concept, because the French argued about their, their race as Frenchness for a, a hundred years. It was all, you know, this Frenches and these Frenches are you real Frenches. These, and we, oh, that's preposterous. French people aren't really a race, they're sort of 
European of some flavor, right? I mean, that's sort of the American view. That's not a real race. Um, but but he, he started with that, and he just works from there, and he says, all this nonsense about the French is just nonsense about everybody. But the important thing is not that it is a superstition, although it is, it's that it's a superstition that infects everything. By the way, he's writing this in the 1930s. This is before the Civil Rights Movement. This is the height of the lynchings in the United States. This is as the Nazis are rolling through Europe. You know, this, this is the beginning, not, not the end of race as a problem. It's the, you know, sort of the beginning upsurge. He says it infects all aspects of Western thinking. And it's a peculiarly, peculiarly Western problem. I mean, the, the, the way we think about race, not only is it a superstition, it's a uniquely formed cultural heritage superstition. Other countries, other cultures and civilizations in the past simply do not have the same outlook on race that we do. Some of them essentially have no outlook at all. But we think, well, our views on race must be, you know, universal, not. Throughout history, no. Scientifically grounded, nothing whatsoever. And Barzin just goes in the book and he just catalogs that. And of course, again, like I said, rear guard action. Nobody paid any attention, nobody cares. Didn't have very much effect. Um, then his next sort of big one was Darwin, Marx, and, and, and Wagner. And I, and I want to, I picked that one out in particular because he takes on Darwin. No one takes on Darwin. Well, if you take on Darwin, then we know you're a creationist anti-science nut job. Right? It's, it's officially branding yourself as an intelligent design, anti-evidence, illogical, Bible-toting bad person. And this is the great thing about Barzin is he never feared this. He's like, look, let's look at the evidence. And, and it's easier for us to, to attack Marx now. We're happy to attack Marx. He's, he's shifted. Used to be, oh, you don't attack Marx now. We're happy to attack Marx. Wagner, no one's ever been defending Wagner, right? We don't even know who Wagner is anymore. But if we did know who he was, we'd be happy to throw rocks at him because he was a fourth-rate human being. Let me tell you. First-rate composer, fourth-rate human being. Uh, so we can throw rocks at him. But Darwin, we know Darwin is great. Barzin had no problem with evolution per se. He just didn't believe in natural selection through randomness. And, and his critique of this is perfectly clear and totally cogent. And in fact, it's one thing that evolutionary biology is struggling with today more than it did in uh, Barzin's time when he wrote the work. And if, if anything, Barzin has been demonstrated to be correct in this long-running and losing battle with it. Uh, he points out perfectly correctly that survival of individuals is not random. Individuals make choices about their environment, about the way they respond to their environment, where they make a nest, who they mate with, what they choose to eat, where they move to choose to, where they move. To the extent that there is any freedom of choice, it's not random. And what needs to be explained is the fact that what has evolved is the capacity for non-random interaction with your environment. That's the miracle. That's the amazing thing. Humans are only the greatest example of this. But all kinds of higher animals have this capacity. What do you do with the non-random elements of evolution? How do you explain that? And he wasn't so much opposed to Darwin, although he does point out quite correctly that the origins of species is a total wreck. If anybody's ever tried to read the origins of species, it's a total wreck. It is not a scientific work. It's a catastrophe. I mean, it's entertaining in sections, boring in many parts. It's cataloging. And Darwin kept rewriting it, as Barzin points out. Not what you're really supposed to do with a scientific manual is rewrite it nine times in your lifetime, dropping things that turn out to be embarrassing, writing out other things, changing all kinds of stuff. He says, this is not science per se. What he's really opposed to is the Darwin social, social Darwinist ideas that grew out of Darwin. He never blames individual thinkers. He always says, look, they came up with a great, entertaining, perhaps wrong-headed idea, but the culture takes it, and we run with it and come up with all kinds of crazy ideas. He was very much opposed to social Darwinism because what it says is that the world is mechanistic, hence human beings are machines, best understood as machines. And one of the battles that, that uh, Barzin was happy to fight and endlessly fought was this notion. 
said human beings have free will. They have the capacity to make judgments. They have the ability to make decisions. And any time you try to reduce them to numbers or a mechanical nature, you're off track. And you've missed all the most important parts of a human being, which is that part which is not reducible to mechanistic outcomes, to these sort of silly impulses. And so in Darwin, Marx, and Freud, uh, Darwin, Marx, and, and Wagner, of course, he, he goes after Darwin, the hero of modern science. And it's, it's an amazing critique. And like I said, one of the things that modern evolutionary biology is trying to struggle with is how do you address the fact that creatures do have the capacity to make all of these choices? And that humans do resist, for instance, birth control. Birth control is evolutionary suicide. This is the dumbest idea ever. Uh, and yet with humans, birth rate is plummeting. So we have chosen as a species not to produce as many of us as we could. That's just, that's just crazy, evolutionarily. But if you have the capacity to choose, it's not crazy. And so those sorts of issues um, that are, have been coming to the fore for the last 10 to 15 years, Barzon was making these, not as a scientist, although it was clearly scientifically grounded, it was an ethical idea. Look, this is an ethically wrong-headed approach. It's not good science, and it's really bad understanding of the human. Um, then you look at teacher in America, uh, and this is given another quote here. Um, again, this is what they kept saying, he influenced things. He did not influence anything. There's a whole section on teacher in America on why we should never use uh, multiple choice tests and why the standardized testing of students is wrong, demonstrated with an endless array of charts and examples and figures and facts and research from the 1940s, right? This 40s, yeah, 45. That's why we stopped doing it. <laughs> and we've, we haven't been applying those resources forever. No, it's just nonsense. But one of the things, this quote is actually from, uh, from Don De Decadence, but it is an, an emblematic of his concept of, from Teacher in America. He says, in fact, any good mind properly taught can think like Euclid and like Walt Whitman. I love those choices, by the way. This is, this is very Barzon-esque. Euclid and Walt Whitman. You know, that's who we like to put together. The Renaissance, as we saw, was full of such minds, equally competent as poets and engineers. The modern notion of the two cultures, incompatible under one skull, comes solely from the proliferation of specialties in science. But these also divide scientists into groups that do not understand one another, that cause being the sheer mass of detail and diverse terminologies. In essence, the human mind remains one, not two, or 60 different organs. Again, it's the perfect historical example. We have this notion, oh, you have humanities people and you have science people. You have people who take calculus and people who take French. And he says, okay, let's look at the Renaissance. Thick with people who were painters and engineers, uh, sculptors and hydro hydrologists who were making machines for war and designing cathedrals, reading Latin, translating uh, classics, and building roads, aqueducts, viaducts, cities, wharfs, harbors. What we say is the undefensible generalization, something that he hates, very specific mind. Oh, well, that was them. That was an age of genius. Like there was something in the water in the Renaissance, or the beer, or the wine, or the heavens, or someplace, that made those people fundamentally different from the human beings before and after. And not like us. Because the other possibility is that we just mess it up so bad that we misunderstand the nature of the human mind, that the capacity to do geometry and the capacity to appreciate Walt Whitman or write poetry are not mutually exclusive. And he says, yeah, it's probably the latter because history suggests the former is so common that we, that must be there. So in Teacher in America, he just goes through um, just example of example of this sort of problem. That today is even more strong. By the way, because I teach at the college, I can tell you there's actually two tracks, and it's perfectly clear. And we have to, when we advise students, we have to tell them, okay, are you going on the science track or are you going on the humanities track? Because it's as if they're mutually exclusive. Academically, they are mutually exclusive. If you say, well, I'd like to take some calculus and some French literature, we go, nah, no. 
I mean, yes, in theory, in practice, no. We don't want you to do that. Um, we want you to do what you're supposed to do, decide what kind of mind you have and cultivate this. This drove Barzan mad because he said, what we're doing in the education is not expanding minds, we're narrowing them, we're specializing them, we're turning them into careers, we're turning them into specialists. And he says he's not against the specialist, he says a specialist is great. But you need a specialist who has a broad mind, broad experience, an understanding of the world. Otherwise, what you get is mechanization of the human again. You get this social Darwinism that says the fittest person is the person who is able to get the most secure and best job, and that's what education is for. And that narrowing um, is, again, he was just, he opposed this at every possibility or every opportunity. Um, at the time, teacher in America was hailed as a revolution. And, and I mean, it was this huge, people discussed it all over the country and adopted absolutely zero of his concepts. Uh, and they have not been adopted to this day. Uh, and then you have this amazing work, Berlioz in the Romantic Century. If you like music, I, I would highly recommend this book. I recommend any of them, but, but this one, if you're particularly interested in music or musical history, uh, Barzin was central with about two other people of getting Berlioz back into the uh, classical repertoire. So if you've ever heard the Symphony Fantastique, which is his first symphony, by the way, a pretty damn impressive first symphony it is. If you're going to do a first symphony, may as well be that. Um, this was this Berlioz's first symphony is now standard work in the classical repertoire, as are several of his other pieces. Barzan, he's the guy. He lobbied to get Berlioz's music back into the classical repertoire. He was a great writer on music and a music critic, besides a lot of the other stuff that he did. And so he actually sort of rescued Berlioz or participated in the rescue of Berlioz from oblivion. And what people discovered is when they played Berlioz's music to them, they loved it. And people were like, hey, we like this Berlioz guy. Play us some more. And so that was it. But how do you get over that initial resistance? We already have our Bs, Bach and Beethoven, little Brahms. We don't need any more Bs. You know, that's the, that was enough, right? That seemed to be the theory. And, and, and he got this in. So if he did have any successful influence, I would say that is it. But it's also an amazing work because apropos of his approach to understanding the world, he places it in this notion of the Romantic century. And he says, if you want to understand Berlioz's music, you have to understand Romanticism. And he has several books that discuss this. But his concept of Romanticism is first to say what it's not. He says, look at all the ways that Romanticism, the word, is used. Lots of them are mutually exclusive, very loose. Um, it means either wildly emotional or you know, deeply in love or anti-rational. But then he lists all the romantic writers and musicians and artists and poets, and you realize they don't share that in common. His argument, I think it's very convincing, is that what Romanticism has in common is the need to build on wreckage. That the classical age had started to fall, and so you had to lay new foundations. And so what the romantic writers and artists and painters had in common was not a product, which are wildly disparate, but the need to build new from the ground up, to lay new foundations. So what's different in Berlioz's music is precisely this. He starts again. He starts anew. Not that he hasn't forgotten the past, he's just, we can't do that anymore for various reasons. So it's a great way to meditate on and understand the concept of a historical period. And it also demonstrates that power of, of, of Barzan's mind, which is to be specific about the details, and then talk about how that expands into a general influence. Get the details right and understand the ongoing influence. Um, so that's, it's a great one, particularly uh, if, if you're interested in music. Then you have something like the House of the Intellect. And here's, yeah, this is a classic Barza. So he talks about this in the House of the Intellect. The three enemies of the intellect are. Now, I bet I could give you a month and you would not come up with the three that Barzan comes up with. Because <laughs> he's Barzan and we're not. And he says the three enemies of the intellect are art, philanthropy, and science. 
And you, and you look at that list and you go, what? What the hell is he smoking? Right? And this is, this is, this, what is Barzun talking about? Well, he says, first, what is the intellect? He believed in the intellect. He said, the intellect is a trained, reasoned, detailed, rigorous mind that reflects at a distance and with evidence and dispassionately on its environment. He always said that he didn't understand criticism as saying things are good or bad. He understood criticism as saying the tide is coming in or going out. So the tide is not bad, but it does come in and it does go out. He says that the job of the critic is not to say good, bad, this should win, that should lose. It should be to say this is what I see is happening. That, but that dispassion is very difficult for us to maintain. In fact, we tend to be suspicious of it. Is it good? Is it bad? Are the good people winning? Are the bad people losing? Barzan didn't want to do that. He wanted to say, here's what I see is happening. You decide if you think something else is happening or what you think the merits of what's going on are. And so in House of the Intellect, he says, intellect is threatened because we've lost all of the elements of the intellect. We do not believe in disciplining the mind. He says this comes from the tradition of many traditions, but primarily from the notion of art. And he says it's correct. Disciplining the artistic mind is a hopeless waste of time and simply kills creativity. He says this is why the intellect is a threat to art. So when you ask an artist to explain their work, you've gone way off track. There is no explaining. It doesn't need explaining. If it does need explaining, it certainly shouldn't be the artist who explains. Many artists have been practically illiterate, uh, incoherent, and when they do explain, they're just crazy shit that they made up, obviously, to fill space. That's why I'm always semi-attracted and horrified by the artist's statement. It's like, it's like this genre of awfulness, because people just create all kinds of nonsense and meaninglessness, because they have to say something and they feel like it should be meaningful, and they can't say painting is fun. Picasso famously said, I like the smell of paint. Somebody asked him, why do you paint? And he says, I like the smell of paint. I was like, there you go. You know, but apparently that's not enough. You have to have, you know, deep philosophical insights and, and uh, all that. In fact, a perfect example is a friend of mine who's a painter now dead, Jim Ball, a brilliant painter. Um, he, they asked him for an artist statement. He didn't want to write it, so I wrote one for him. And it was all about how, when his mother had gone crazy and they had been taken to the asylum, that when he came home from school, when he went to school, he passed the home where she was. And one of the things they had for her to do was to paint, and that they would paint together. And this is how his mother faded from his life. Painting filled that void and gave him the love and the beauty. This is all nonsense, of course. I made this all up, but it was, it was just beautiful. It was a beautiful artist statement. It was all this pathos and the loss and the and the emotion and the reality and, it, and he said that would sell paintings said, absolutely I said would sell paintings uh, didn't mean anything it was nonsense I made it all but it was great fun but this is right but that's what the artist statement is we're asking a question of the intellect that is not from the intellect so the art which is the emotion the chaos the freedom the generative capacity this is not the intellect the intellect needs to be trained and, and channeled you need to learn rules. You need to learn ways of thinking, habits of mind. But we want you know, free, free the mind, free the mind. Well, yes, in one way, free the mind, yes. But in the other way, no. If you want to learn to shoot three-point baskets, you've got to learn form. You've got to learn structure. You have to learn to discipline your body. We have no problem with this in sports. We understand this. In sports, yes, you practice, you discipline, you train. Somehow in the mind, no, let it go free. You will freely learn, you know, uh, old Slavonic Russian, right? That will just come to you in the night as an inspiration. No, it won't. You'll have to study it. I guarantee it. Old Slavonic Russian, not an easy language. Uh, you know, this old church Slavonic, as it's called. But I mean, this, 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 this concept of just freedom, he says, this comes from art, enemy of the intellect. Also, intellect, also enemy of art often. Philanthropy. Oh, he hates philanthropy. Uh, he says philanthropy is simply the bureaucratization of something that should not be bureaucratized. Dear thinker, dear person of the intellect, explain to us how your rationations will contribute to the betterment of Western civilization in the next two months. Right? It's like, what? So, and so like the artist statement, 
researchers and thinkers spend a lot of time writing statements about how, you know, the greater understanding of the Western ties to the Eastern tradition will help ameliorate the trade ties, but what the hell are you talking about, right? But, but the philanthropists need a justification. And so you don't spend your time thinking, you spend your time trying to make an argument for why the things you should be thinking, but you don't have time to think because you're filling out paperwork, should be funded by the philanthropists. And he says it's incredibly misleading and it bureaucratizes horribly something that need not be bureaucratized. Now, he wasn't opposed to the idea of philanthropy specifically. He said in France there were some philanthropies, as we would understand them, big, you know, doning institutions. He said one of the largest ones had one secretary and one guy. And if they thought you were doing good work, they would send you money into philanthropy. No, see, we don't do that. We have committees and subcommittees and people, you know, mission statements and requests for proposals and the proposals, and those are sorted and sifted for quality. And, and he gives all these great examples, like somebody said, uh, you know, they were proposing a new opera and they wanted submissions and they wanted the submissions to be roughly of the quality of the marriage of Figu Figaro, for example. <laughs> Which like, well, absolutely, you can just crank those out, you know, marriage of Figaro, here we go, boom. Right, there it is. You know, it's just crazy, the philanthropic ideal misunderstands the role of intellect, so misleads it. Finally, science, <clears throat> because science has two problems, well, several problems for, for the intellect, but one is, is the notion of specialization. And for bars on the intellect, it's all about broad, encompassing outlook. Anytime you get too narrow, again, you start losing the human, you start losing the human, that's the whole, the, the intellect starts to get lost. And also science, took on this model of results. If you invest a million dollars in building a bridge and designing it, you'll probably get a bridge. It'll go over budget and be six months late, but you'll get a bridge, right? He says, with the intellect, you go, oh, I'm gonna do a study of whatever, something in the history of Thucydides and, uh, and look at how this influenced the Western outlook from then. I mean, how long is it gonna take? I don't know. What's it going to produce? I'm not sure. By the way, next time I'm going to talk about Kaufman, a brilliant man, Walter Kaufman, and he actually gives examples of Socrates writing a proposal to fund his research. It is, it's, I'll have these. They're absolutely, they're just, they're so beautiful. He's very much, uh, he disagrees with Barnes on some things, but on that they're totally in concert. So, so, this, so this is why science, philanthropy, and art ends up being the enemy of the intellect. The mass is not the enemy of the intellect. As he points out, the mass does not care about the intellect. Mass is indifferent to the intellect, and he says, rightly so. Why should they be interested in it? It's not, an, it's not a mass pursuit. It's a limited, unique, indeed elitist pursuit. It's not a mass pursuit. So he doesn't care about the mass. Mass, as he says, has either been indifferent to or you know, is moderately hostile to. No, the enemies of the intellect are people who think they have intellect, like artists, philanthropists, and scientists. <laughs> so that's the enemy of the intellect, right? It's when we get it wrong. So again, now whether he's correct on this, that's great. He would love to argue about all this, but is, is this a crazy, unique perspective? The enemy of the intellects, art, philanthropy, science. I would, you know, who would come up with that list? Um, then if you want to go for the full uh, uh, attack on science, you have science, that glorious entertainment. <laughs> so, so again, Barzan is not anti-science. In fact, he's very pro-science. What he is, is he's against this attempt to, what he, scientism, the attempt to try and put scientific reasoning and scientific methods in places where it simply does not belong. And we cannot help ourselves. We absolutely cannot resist. <clears throat> we want to reduce everything to numbers. We want everything to be data points. Um, the humanities struggle with this mightily now because they try to justify things the way science justifies things, you know, with cogent research, and most of which is nonsense, by the way. There was just a big study out where they tried to reproduce like 12 big psychological studies, and it turned out only four of them returned anything like the same examples. So what you call the social sciences, they aren't sciences at all. They're, they're attempts to reason sort of with the tools of science and sort of graph some philosophy on it and make some claims that have no basis in anything at the end of the day. He's very suspicious of this. And he puts this at the feet. And again, he's not against scientists. He says it's the cultural t uh, attempt to import science and use that as a model for everything. And, you know, again, horribly suspicious of this. Um, a wonderful book. If you're going to read one book uh, not the, and you're not interested in Berlioz, which you should be, by the way, uh, is The Culture We Deserve, <laughs> which uh, a critique of disenlightenment. 
And again, culture we deserve. He doesn't blame. He says, why do we have the culture we have? Because we're who we are. We always want to point the finger at somebody else. He says, no, this is our culture. It's the culture we deserve. And if we don't want this culture, well, we'll have to change it. I, the example I would use is while he was at Columbia, and again, him, him losing another battle, he was famous because he taught this great books course with Lionel Trilling, which I just, I can't even imagine. So he started teaching it, uh, and then the administration said, hey, this course is going really well. We want you to co-teach it with someone. And Barzan said, I don't want to co-teach with somebody, by which I think he meant some idiot. Um, and they said, well, talk to the guy. And they said, oh, OK, here's Lionel Trilling. Well, that turned out to work great, because here was two of the leading critics of the 20th century who just happened to be at Columbia at the same time. And they hit it off famously. And the courses are now are actually quite famous. And so one of the things they argue for, the great books tradition. Now, here's the thing. You can argue about which books should be in the great books tradition. Barzan loves that argument. He wants to have that argument with you every single day of the week. In fact, essentially, the course was built around the concept of why are these books the great books, and what should be the books, and which one of these don't belong here. It, the great books tradition is the debate about what books should be considered the great books. It is anti-demotic. It is against the people. Because that is, if you have great books, that means A, you have books that are not great, and you have human beings who are better. You have these human beings who wrote works that are better than the works that I can write or that almost any other author can write. And we hate that in America. This is elitist. We want to get rid of this. And this is one of the battles that has been lost completely. We no longer have this concept. So we've eliminated the notion of great works. What we've replaced it with, first they said, well, it's the Western canon. Uh, by the way, there's never been any agreement about what the Western canon is. This is one of the hilarious things. People want to say, what the well, you know, it was all dead white men. Dead, yes. <laughs> men, almost exclusively, but that's because they used to not let women get an education, right? So, all right, that's fair. White, absolutely not. If you look at the great works of that, that book, the Great Books Collection, which is not Barzan's collection, but let it stand in, about three quarters of those authors are not white by any definition that would have been applied before, you know, two weeks ago. Lots of them were Catholic, which disqualified you from being white, by the way. This is a, sort of a shock. In the 1920s, you were not white if you were Catholic. Uh, you had to be a uh, Protestant to be white. Uh, this is true. This is a historical fact. I'm not making that up. Um, uh, you had lots of people from ancient Greece who would have been shocked to discover they were white. Um, you had a lot of people from Egypt shocked to discover they were white. People, eight Persians, good Lord, they're going to be shocked to discover they're white. I mean, so who, if, if everybody is white, then yes, they were the works of dead white men. Um, you know, but if you don't have that genre. So what we said is there's no great works. Everything is equally important. And so if you go to a, a, a literature class today or, or a big university someplace or a small one, you can study TV, you can study comic books, you can study... Uh, Popular novels, the works of Tom Clancy, good Lord. Um, you know, because if there's no great works, then everything is equally important and means everything is equally worthy of study uh, and nobody is great or, or, or not great. And what's interesting about this, Barzon pointed this out a long time ago, by the way, is it means that there can never be a great female writer or philosopher because there's no great works. So what we've done is not opened up the possibility for the brilliant woman to rise and produce a work of stunning, amazing, culture-altering greatness because we don't recognize it anymore. Can't be done because we don't have that opportunity. There are no great works. We've eliminated it. At least we've eliminated it from the university. Uh, in practice, it turns out that people still think lots of works are better than other works and are happy to argue about that. But if you look at the university where he was based, that's one of the things that's been lost, is the notion that some things are just better than others. Very elitist, by the way, because it says some people are better than others. You know, this is the, oh, this is the great claim that, uh, well, you know, yeah, he wrote the, he, he, Dostoevsky wrote Brothers Karamazov, great work. Um, but he puts his pants on one leg at a time. 
It's like, yeah, well, I put my pants on one leg at a time, and I can't write the Brothers Karamazov. You know, that, the thing is not the putting the pants on one leg at a time. It's the it's the novel. It's the it's the scientific breakthrough. It's the climbing the Everest, right? I mean, it is the doing of the thing that sets you apart. But we hate this now, right? We culturally we have this resistance, and we don't want anything to be great. We don't want, for, for instance, uh, if people know the, 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 the rediscovery of the African classics, this is still being translated in Timbuktu, tens of thousands of manuscripts, none of those will be great works of literature either. Certainly there are, but by the time we finish translating them, incorporating them, if they aren't burned and destroyed in the war, which we hope not. Um, by the way, the French military actually intervened to protect this library, amazingly enough, they did. Uh, the, but we, now we won't classify them as great because we, we lost that concept. And this is what Barzana says, you know, this is the threat. This is, this is what we face. Another example, while he was dean of graduate studies, he worked for years and years to rebuild a, a, an educational institution, in this case, Columbia. Um, and what he said is, look, education is a group endeavor. We're all in this together. We aren't separate departments. We aren't professors and administrators. We aren't students. We need to say, we are a group on a shared mission with a shared goal. We're all doing different parts of it, but we're a team. Students, professors, janitors, administration, everybody. We're all in this together. And he worked, I mean, tirelessly for years thousands of meetings, literally, trying to get this, everybody to get together. He was making headway, making headway. And then you had the uh, student protests of the 1960s against the war. And he said, and everybody picked up sides. Why were the students protesting the universities? Because they felt there was the administration doing something and them doing something. And these had no connection. And he says, if you're in that environment, you can't learn. Essentially, he argues, you can't learn. And the old notion of a shared research was killed because professors picked up sides, the students picked up sides, the administration, they knew what side they were on in theory. But he said, by the way, it made no sense whatsoever to protest university administration. It's just, it, it, if all the things in the war to protest, it was university administrations that were the problem? So this seemed extraordinarily unlikely. At the very least, way down on your list of important things to protest. But that was what, because that's where they were. He said it was just, it was a protest of convenience. You protest where you are, and where you are was the university, so there you go. Uh, and, and he says this led to a complete breakdown of the notion of a shared experience. Basically, he saw it as a club. When you went to the university, you had joined a club. Welcome. Now you're a member. You get the secret handshake. We love you. You love us. It's all a valuable experience, and we're all in this together. Another example, one that's even sort of make the, if you want to read it, it'll make the hairs on your arms stand up. And he talks about women's education. And he writes about this in the 1940s when women are really starting to go to school in mass. And he says, look, and he's taught about as many women as, as men, he says, and I think he's probably correct in that. Um, why do we want women to have the same kind of education as men? He says, all the evidence suggests that given the opportunity, women do, do just as well in any field as any man can do. But is that what we want? Is that the outcome we're looking for? Women don't go into the sciences as much. They don't go into the judiciary as much. They don't go into all these other fields as much because they want to be wives. Ho oh, ho. Doesn't that make your skin crawl? And because they want to be wives, they choose the humanities. They don't choose the humanities because they love the humanities. They don't choose the humanities because they want to develop their intellects. They choose it because it seems like a pleasant way to kill time before they get married. Ho. Oh. Today, if you read reports of humanities department, enrollments are way down. And people are like, oh, what's going on? You know, the barbarians are winning. The, the, you know what's happening? As women have decided they want careers, they've been enrolling in the humanities department at declining rates. 
This is where the enrollment for the humanities is going. Women are leaving the humanities because they've decided they want careers, which is precisely what Berzon was talking about in the 1940s. He said, they're not here for some of them. He said, some of them are. But many of them are not here for the love of the humanities. They're here because it's sort of a finishing school. And universities are not finishing schools. Fast forward 50 years. Now they're not finishing schools. And what women are doing is excelling in all the fields that Barzan thought they should have been going into then or not going to university. Or develop a special course for women who plan not to have careers or men who plan not to have careers. He was perfectly open to both. And so even these times when you're like, ew, I don't know, this is making my skin crawl. You know, eek. It turns out that his fearlessness, his willingness to just roll this out and say, look, this is what I see, this is my experience, this is what the numbers back up. Let's respond to what is, not what should be, if we want to should be, then let's work to make it that way, not assume that if we play nice, everything will turn out for the best, because he didn't believe that. Um, finally, we have to end on the um, from dawn to decadence, 500 years of Western cultural life from 1500 to the present. How am I doing on time, Milo, back there? Oh, my goodness. Okay, 500 years and eight minutes. Ready, set, go. Uh, <laughs> Actually, the fact that he does 500 years in the 800 pages of From Dawn to Decadence is pretty amazing. But again, if you've heard of our culture as decadent, that we're declining and all of this, Barzan, again, with clarity, says, look, decadence is a very clear phenomenon that we can define and then use. And he says, decadence is a period when people do not agree on fundamentals. If there's anything that is clear in our age... It is that we do not believe in fundamentals and we do not believe in our institutions. Voting participation rates are declining. Uh, we disagree about just about everything. We, we can't agree how to label things. We don't agree on identities. And he says, it's not decadent in the sense of, oh, we've gone from good to bad. It's decadent in the sense that we've gone from a period when we agreed about some fundamental things, broadly, there was all kinds of arguments inside this. This wasn't a stultifying. This is when it becomes stultifying, this mannerism. But he called this classicism. Classicism is when your culture has a rough agreement on the purposes of life, what's right and wrong, modes of behavior, not that they're right, they're just generally agreed upon. And we don't worry about those, and we worry and think about other things. Decadent civilizations are civilizations where, for whatever reasons, often outside forces force you to reevaluate your most basic assumptions. And that reevaluation leads to often, not always, but often widespread disagreement. And when that disagreement fractures your culture, you're in a decadent age. It's not moral decadence. It's simply an inability to come to any coherent sense of this is what we all believe in. Like, the, the clear example he gives, and it's just a wonderful example, is it, you can see it in here in Port Townsend. Our post office and our county, uh, the, the county courthouse, are two sort of overscaled for our population, certainly, but kind of semi-monumental public works of architecture that were meant to say, this is your government, and we're great, it's big, it's spacious, it's expensive, it's got big doors and nice windows, come on in, because your government matters. We don't build government buildings like that anymore. We tend to build ugly, functionalist, uh, unpleasant government buildings because we don't believe in government. We don't think, wow, we are really filled with pride because we've opened a new government building. We think, how can we get the most square footage for the least money? Anything else is a waste. 
And so you can actually see it in the architecture, and he talks about this, that if you believe in the value of government, then the government, the actual buildings you build, you build as civic monuments to a communal belief that this is important. If you don't believe in government, you don't do that. You build what's necessary, what's functional, and then you feel, then you grumble about paying for that. You know, that, that, that's just that, that, that mindset. I, I, I can't remember the last time I had a student who said, I want to go into politics and make my country better. It even sounds stupid, doesn't it? Yeah, yes, I'm going to go into politics and make, no. Going into politics used to be considered you know, you could go in and make a difference. You could serve your country. Even serving your country sounds vaguely silly, right? Like, serve your country. Not serve my country. Country, you know, we just, we don't have that notion anymore. It's faded away. Barton doesn't say this is bad, by the way. He just says this is an is. He says he cannot find any shared common belief. He finds a shared common disharmony lack of agreement, strong sense that things are wrong and that government can't fix them. But what does it mean if you live in a society where you know you have problems that you need to address, that are the government's responsibility, but that you don't think that nobody thinks the government can address them? It means your system is falling apart. It's going decadent. Because this is not necessarily a bad thing, by the way. Because this is where the Renaissance came from. The Renaissance was what came when all of the old manners that came before, call it the Dark Ages, whatever you want to call it, that as the old system started to splinter and fall apart under new pressures, economic development, so what came up was the Renaissance. We loved the Renaissance. We thought, wow, the Renaissance, great, wonderful, good stuff. So we could be on the cusp of, you can't have a Renaissance, by the way, a rebirth until you have a death. And so as institutions die away, as belief systems, as, as habits begin to fail, new habits, new possibilities can rise. They don't necessarily have to, but can rise. Fill that vacuum. New organizational structures, new belief systems, new social harmonies can rise up to deliver the goods that we want. To, to, to solve the problems that all human societies have always had. And so this cycle that he calls from dawn to decadence is what he explores in the book, and it's a, a very powerful reading. And he begins with the Reformation, because he says that is the beginning. That's the last 500 years ago, a very big change took place. He thinks that we're on the cusp of another change as powerful as the Protestant Reformation. And so that arc of 500 years is where we find ourselves. And just some of the evidence that he, he rolls out in that book, which is just very powerful. One is nation states are more or less done. I mean, it, when you think about the UN, all our multilateral trade agreements, um, conservatives tend to scream about the giving away of sovereignty and their right. Because this is precisely what all these multilateral agreements are about. That if we give up a little bit of sovereignty, we get a lot in return. Old nation states, no, you never did that. If you wanted something, you conquered it. You were looking to expand the reach of your nation state. That's why you made an empire. More of me, better. Uh, the EU is this exercise, an attempt to sort of give up a lot of national power in exchange for regional security and prosperity. Experiment, how's it going? Ugh. You know, mixed results so far, but an interesting experiment, but certainly not a nation-state experiment. So, you know, and again, he'll give all kinds of evidence, but a lot of it is just very concrete and obvious. As I said, he's, he's sort of the, the master of the overlooked obvious. Um, uh, final note on Barza, because it, it sounds sort of depressing in a way, in a way it is, because like, like I said, he, he fought this rearguard action for something that he saw fading pretty much his whole life. But it didn't embitter him. He said, uh, if history teaches anyone anything, is that you have to be a hopeful pessimist. He says, history is absolutely filled 
with times when things look bleak and hopeless, and yet something amazing, extraordinary, wonderful happens, and the whole thing just turns around. And something, so he says, you're, you're kind of pessimistic because you look around and go, wow, that's not good, and that's not good, and that looks not so good, and wow, that trend line is negative. But then, he says, the most amazing, wonderful, hopeful thing will happen. A new art movement, a, 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 a new governance system that involves more people, a, a new system of agriculture that allows the population to boom and poverty to reduce and the death rate plummets and you know, women are allowed to participate in politics. And, you know, that's great. And he says, so this... His view, again, he tries to have this detached view. He doesn't want to say things are good or bad, although as often you can tell that he doesn't think it's great. Um, he talks about what we're gaining and what we're losing. But he always comes back to this notion is that human history is, in mass, hopeful. Because we are here. We do have these treasures from the past that haven't been lost. And what he wants us to do is remember that, remember what's good, and kind of bring it into the present, or as much as we can. Because we can only do it, and this is, this is sort of the last note, we can only do it individually. Cultures are a mass of individuals, but it's still individuals. One person or a group of people working together can put Berlioz back on the map. A group of guys can get together in England and form the Beatles, and all of a sudden, something new and wonderful happens. You know, so, so that possibility is always there. Things might look bad, a little pessimistic, but finally, always hopeful. Thank you. Uh, Jacques Barzon. Thank you.